This morning, we are gonna end our series titled Miraculous. And in preparation, I'd like you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 11. And while you're doing that, let me tell you a story. On August 24th, 1814, British General Robert Ross marched his army into Washington and began to systematically burn down buildings, the treasury, the Capitol, the president's palace, which is now known as the White House, and the Library of Congress. Now at that time, the Library of Congress only contained 3,000 volumes, but it was still great kindling for the fire. Several months later, Congress set out to rebuild the nation's library. So they approved the purchase of the largest personal collection of books in the United States, and it belonged to none other than former President Thomas Jefferson, our third president, who once said, I cannot live without books, but was apparently willing to sell his collection for $23,950. Now, for those who do not know, the Library of Congress houses 35 million books. It is also custodian to six and a half million pieces of sheet music, 5.4 million maps, and 13.6 million photographs. And, and if you care about these kinds of things, it adds about 11,000 volumes to its collection every single day that it's open. Aren't you glad you came to church to learn all these fascinating things? The reason for me bringing this up to you is to talk about two specific books that are in the Library of Congress that came from Thomas Jefferson's collection. The first was a Bible that was printed in 1555 in Geneva, Switzerland, and it radically changed the way that we read the Bible. A French printer and scholar named Robert Esteen had the novel idea of creating chapters and verses within the Bible. So the next time you cite a chapter and a verse, you can, you can thank Esteen and his Bible because it was the first one to add verses and chapters. But the second book I want to bring to your attention is another Bible that has become known as the Jefferson Bible, and, and it, it is quite unique. You see, Thomas Jefferson had a unique appreciation for the teachings of Jesus Christ, but he was also called a child of the Enlightenment. When Jefferson was 16 years old and his first year student at the College of William and Mary, his professor, William Small, introduced him to the writings of British pragmatist John Locke and his enlightened brethren group. This group enthroned reason and logic was their God. And due to his involvement with the enlightened brethren, everything that, that President, former President Jefferson believed in was filtered through logic and reason. Now, before you get mad at Jefferson, I believe this is more common than you might realize. You see, there is a natural tendency for us to explain away what we don't, what, or what we can't explain. But when you do, what happens is you lose the mystery and you lose all the miracles. And so we try to reduce God down to the logical constraints of our left brain, and we create a God in our own image. And what happens when you do this is, is that you end up with a God, lowercase g, a God who looks an awful lot like you, talks like you, thinks like you, acts like you, a mirrored image of yourself, if you will. In the words of A.W. Tozer, you end up with a God who can never surprise you 
never astonish you, never overwhelm you, and never transcend you. And I might add a God who can never do miracles. But that's not the God that I believe in, ladies and gentlemen. That's not the God of the Holy Bible. I believe in a God who is high and exalted. I believe in a God who is omniscient and omnipresent. I believe in a God who is able to do immeasurably more than I can ask or imagine according to his power at work within me. I believe in a God whose thoughts are higher than my thoughts and whose ways are higher than my ways. I believe in a God whose love I possibly can't comprehend, whose mercy I don't possibly deserve, and whose power no one can possibly contain. I believe in a God who exists outside of the four dimensions of space and of time that he created. I believe in a God who can make and break the laws of nature. I believe in a God who can make the sun stand still and who can part rivers and who can part seas. I believe in a God who can create the cosmos with four simple words, let there be light. I believe a God in who regularly does the miraculous. I believe in a God who can turn water into wine, who can heal an invalid who's been that way for 38 years. And I believe in a God who can raise a man from the dead four days later. G.K. Chesterton wrote, how much happier you would be, how much more of you there would be if the hammer of a higher God would smash your small cosmos. We are a small thinking people. So the hammer of a higher God smashing our tiny cosmos is needed, amen? And let me tell you something that's very true. Give Jesus a chance, and he'll do just that. So let's get back to the Jefferson Bible. It was a result of Jefferson himself going to work with a pair of scissors. When he single-handedly wrote an abridged version of the Bible, minus all of the miracles. Jefferson included all the teachings of Jesus, but he excluded all the miracles of Jesus. He deleted the virgin birth, he deleted the resurrection, and the 34 distinct miracles that Jesus did in between those two events. In the words of historian Edwin Gustad, if a moral lesson was embedded in a miracle, the lesson survived in Jeffersonian scripture, but the miracle did not. A classic example of this is the man with the withered hand that was healed on the Sabbath. In Jefferson's gospel, he offers a commentary on the Sabbath, but the man's hand is left unhealed. And when Jefferson got to John's gospel, Gustad says he kept his blade busy. Jefferson's version of the gospel ends with the stone rolled in front of the tomb because in his logical way of thinking, Jesus died on the cross but never rose from the dead. Now that might be hard for some of you to imagine, especially since so many of the founding fathers of our nation have been referred to as men of faith. How could a man of faith with a professed belief in Jesus Christ take a pair of scissors to the sacred scriptures? There's a part of us that says, you just can't do that. But the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, we do the very same thing. 
I mean, what promises have you stopped claiming in your own life? What miracles are you not believing God for anymore? Did you take the scissors to it? What dream have you given up on? So we too can cut and paste, just like Jefferson did. We pick and choose. We rationalize verses that are just too radical for us. And we, we scrub down the verses that are too supernatural for us. And we put scriptures on the chopping block of our human logic. And what happens is we end up with a neutered gospel. God forgive us. Listen, when you subtract the miracles like Jefferson did, what you are left with is a wise and yet a weak Jesus. He is kind and compassionate, but his raw power is missing. When you, when you cut out the miracles, you cut Jesus off at the knees. And I think that that is the Jesus that many people follow today. Or maybe I should say that's the Jesus that people invite to follow them. Here, Jesus, follow my agenda, follow my plan. But that's not the genuine Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. 2 Timothy 3.5 tells us there are professing Christians walking around having a form of godliness but denying its power. While at the same time, 1 Corinthians 4.20 tells us, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And let me please add, not just power, but wonder-working power. Makes you want to sing that old hymn, doesn't it? Here's my point. If you follow Jesus long enough, you are going to experience the miraculous. I guarantee it. I can't tell you when. I can't tell you how or where. That's above my pay grade. But Jesus made one of the boldest statements in the Bible when he said this in John 14, 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now, we would consider that heresy if it was spoken from the lips of any other person other than Jesus himself. I mean, greater things? Listen, here's what I'm getting at. If you follow Jesus, you're going to do what Jesus did. You're going to care for the poor. You are going to serve. You're going to be generous. And you're going to start caring for the things that, that please God in this world. You're going to pray for people. And in Jesus' name, they are going to be healed. And guess what? You're probably even going to offend some Pharisees along the way. You're, you are going to traffic in the miraculous, not just as, as an eyewitness, but as a catalyst. It's what I've been saying this entire series. You are someone else's miracle. Don't get me wrong. Only God can perform miracles. So God gets the glory. But isn't it great that he wants us to get in on the action? That's when it gets exciting. So here's what we are going to do. I want to make sure that we end this series the way that we started it. Don't seek the miracles. Seek Jesus. Don't seek the gift. Seek the giver of the gift. And let me assure you, if you follow Jesus long enough and far enough, you will find yourself in the middle of some miracles 
It is just that simple. Now, before we move on, and I know this is a long introduction, let's do a quick recap of where we've been in this series. In week one, in John chapter two, it was when Jesus turned the water into wine, and not just wine, but fine wine, and not just one glass, but equal to 757 bottles worth of wine. It was a time when just like every other molecule and atom in the universe, they submitted to his authority as their creator, the water molecules did. In week number two, we looked at John chapter four, where Jesus healed the nobleman's son, long distance, proving that he was the Lord of longitude and latitude, the one who created the space and time continuum that we live in today. He knows no geographical or chronological limitations. There is no here or there because he is here and there and everywhere. There is no past, present, and future because he is the great I am. In week three, we looked at John chapter five, where he reversed 38 years of pain and suffering with one command. When he healed an invalid who had gone to the pool of Bethesda all of his life to receive his healing from those stirred waters, but it was Jesus' command to get up and walk that brought about his healing. And last week, we looked at John chapter six, when Jesus fed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And we learned that five plus two does not equal seven, not in God's kingdom, not when you add God to the equation, five plus two equals 5,000 plus with the remaining 12 baskets of food left over. Well, today in John chapter 11, we are going to probably see the most amazing miracle of all. And let me preface this story with just a few thoughts. One of the strange delusions of our day is the unwarranted belief that medical science is making great strides in conquering disease and eliminating or reducing the aging process. Now it is true that people are living longer today than they did 50 and 60 years ago, and we are grateful for that. It is also true that science has virtually eliminated certain diseases that once were great killers among us. I mean, hardly does anyone die from tuberculosis or polio or diphtheria or smallpox anymore. On the other hand, however, death due to heart disease and cancer are skyrocketing. The point is, in spite of all of this apparent progress, the death rate remains exactly where it has always been, a flat 100%. You can jog all you want, you can avoid cholesterol, you can watch your health, and all those things are good things, and I encourage you to do it, and I need to do it. But ultimately, you will end up being the healthiest corpse that ever died. Because death is still a matter of our, a master is the master, excuse me, of our race. It is. Nothing can be done about it. But this story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is an eyewitness factual account of our Lord and Savior and his ability to reverse the iron grip of death. Although Lazarus has been dead for four days, Jesus turned that all around and he brought him back to life again not by painstaking medical research, not by voodoo magic or, or incantations, but by a simple word of command because he was and is and always will be the God of the miraculous. 
So after that long introduction, whew, I'm out of breath. Let's start by reading John chapter 11, beginning with verse one. This is when Jesus is first notified that his friend Lazarus is sick. John 11, one through 14. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed here, he stayed where he was two more days, and he then said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said that, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. I once heard a pastor say to never put a comma where God puts a period and never put a period where God puts a comma. You see, Lazarus was dead, and that's where we put a period, but not Jesus. He said that his sickness would not end in death. Lazarus has died, but it's not over until God says that it's over. And I think every one of us have experienced a moment in our life when it seemed like things were over. Maybe you were in a serious relationship that ended, a marriage perhaps, and at that moment it felt like your life was over. Or maybe you made a huge mistake and you realized that your life was never going to be the same and so there it kind of felt like life was over for you. Or you lost a loved one, or you lost a job, or, or you lost your life savings through some kind of a, a bad investment. I wanna tell you something this morning, it is not over. You may think that, that a period goes there, but not when God is in the mix. Oswald Chambers once said, sometimes it looks like God is missing the mark because we are too short-sighted to see what he is aiming for. So let me tell you what I've learned in my life. Before God adds, he usually subtracts. Before God multiplies, he usually prunes. And, and before God brings something to life, something usually dies. And we have this tendency to hit the panic button in times like this, whenever God subtracts, or whenever there is a pruning going on in our life, or whenever something is dying. But I wanna tell you that maybe God is getting ready to do something in your life that he has never ever done before. And I'm gonna really ruin the end of this story, but I did a bit of research. Church tradition offers two versions of what happened to Lazarus after his resurrection. 
One tradition holds that he and his sisters made their way to the island of Cyprus, where Lazarus was the first bishop of Kitchen. It was widely believed that in the city of Larnaca, underneath the church of St. Lazarus, you find Lazarus' second tomb, the tomb that he was buried in some 30 years after his first death. But the second church tradition holds that Lazarus and his sisters ended up in Marseille, France, where Lazarus, and you've got to love this, was hiding in a tomb. But he was eventually beheaded during a time of persecution as ordered by Emperor Domitian. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure which of those traditions are true or if either one of them is true. But either way, God gave Mary and Martha their brother back and Lazarus lived two lives. I want you to know something this morning. God intends for you and I to live two lives as well. There comes that time when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We were dead in our sin, but then he brings us back to life. And he doesn't just bring us back to life. He says, I'll come that you might have life and that you might have life more abundantly. That's a beautiful two-dimensional word. In the Greek language, it means life that will not end. I mean, forget about the 70 or 80 or 90 years that we're given on this earth. How about eternity? And qualitatively speaking, Jesus proves, provides, excuse me, a life with, with more joy, a life with, with more purpose, a life that, that is more peaceful, and a life that has more power than you can imagine. That's why he came to give you and I a second life. Now, I don't know how long Lazarus lived after Jesus resurrected him, but our best estimates say it was about 30 years. But one way or the other, Jesus gave him a second life. And I want to tell you something this morning, that our miraculous God wants to do for you what he did for Lazarus. Let's move on to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. So as we read the scripture, Jesus isn't a day late and a dollar short. He's four days late. And I think the million-dollar question is, why did he wait? I have a theory. It is only a theory. He could have certainly saved Lazarus as he was drawing his last breath. He could have walked across the water. He could have arrived right when Lazarus was taking his last breath. But Jesus had already been there and had already done that. He had already revealed to the world his healing power. But I think now it was time for him to reveal his resurrection power. And I want you to hold on to something this morning. Sometimes things go from bad to worse because God wants to reveal more of his grace and more of his love and more of his power than we have ever known before. He wants to do a miracle that is greater than anything we've ever experienced before. And I think that all of us want a miracle but it's like I've said, I think for three weeks now, we just don't want to be in a situation that necessitates a miracle. But sometimes you have to be in the grave four days to 
to really experience an unprecedented miracle like this one. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What Martha says in this little passage is a bit passive aggressive when you think about it. And then his encounter with Mary, her sister, is kind of the same thing. They really aren't blaming Jesus, but they are, but they aren't, but they are. And, and truthfully, I think we get a little passive aggressive with God ourselves sometimes. We do. And the reason that we do that is because we know that God could prevent these things from happening. And sometimes we just don't understand why he doesn't prevent them from happening. Sometimes we just don't get it. And so we too get a little passive aggressive with our heavenly father. But I want you to see the conjunction in this verse. Aren't you impressed with that word conjunction? I learned it watching Schoolhouse Rock when I was a kid. And that, stong, that song, Conjunction Junction. I could sing it for you right now. I remember it. No, I'm not going to sing it. Martha says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then follows one of my favorite passages in the scriptures in John eleven twenty two. 22. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Even now God will give you whatever you ask. If I'm reading this right, Martha is still holding out hope. She is. Lazarus has been dead now for four days. And this is so great. I mean, at what point do you give up? Day one, day two, day three of death? It's day four, and evidently, Martha is still holding out hope. And let me just say that there are going to be moments when it seems like you and I are out of touch with reality. Why? I'm talking about as Christians. Because you are in touch with a reality that is far more real than the reality that we can see and touch and feel and smell in this world. What I'm talking about is when you have faith that can see beyond the physical circumstances in which we exist. And here's what's interesting. People thought that Jesus was crazy on more than one occasion. When he walked into the temple and he threw out the money changers, everybody thought he was crazy. But he wasn't crazy. Do you know what's crazy? It's crazy that those people thought they could turn the temple of God into a den of thieves. The money changers were crazy that day and the days before and even the days after. You see, Jesus is normal and miracles are normal. But can you also see that our normal is so subnormal that in our day, normal seems abnormal? doesn't it? So what we need is to begin to approximate what it is that we see. Here's what I'm getting at. I don't want to be normal. I want to be crazy. And I'll tell you why. Because in a biblical sense, crazy is normal. Crazy is the biblical norm. And some would say that it was Martha's grief that was speaking here, but it wasn't. She was speaking those words out of faith. And faith, ladies and gentlemen, often looks out of touch with reality. 
The sentence should end after Martha says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Martha doesn't put a period there. She puts a comma. And I want to tell you something. Even when it seems like God is four days late, it is much too soon to give up on the Lord. Let's go to verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And Jesus' response here, understand, wasn't just for Martha at that moment. It was for all mankind. And it sums up the entire gospel message when he says this in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. You know, I have presided over more funeral services that I care to mention from some longtime members of this church in my almost 10 years here. And I have often used those words that Jesus spoke that have been written in the book of John. And I have learned that funerals are one of the very best places of time for you to plant seeds of the gospel message because a lot of unsaved people come to funerals. And for the most part, people who don't know Jesus really think that when you die, it's just game over. Many believe that this 70, 80, or 90 years that we're given on this earth is all there is. They really think that what follows physical death is a dirt nap, just resting in the ground forever and becoming worm food. It's here where we get this unusual term that you see used all the time, rest in peace, my friend. R.I.P. Let me tell you something. No one rests in peace who hasn't received the salvation that Jesus Christ made available. As I say at almost every funeral that I ever speak at, we are not human beings on a spiritual journey. We are spiritual beings on a human journey. It really doesn't matter what you believe because your spirit lives eternally. When you die, only your body dies. These bodies are what the Bible calls an earthen vessel. This body is the container which houses your eternal spirit. And one day it will wear out and one day it will die. But your spirit lives on. And where your spirit will rest eternally is based upon a decision you must make. You will either spend it in the presence of God, or if you deny Christ, you will spend it in hell for all of eternity, tormented. The choice is yours. And I want you to notice that twice Jesus states the condition here when he says, he who believes in me. And I'm sorry to say that scripture does not bring forth any hope to those who do not believe in Christ Jesus, to those who have had an opportunity to hear his word and receive and, and his offer of grace that he, he extends this marvelous promise to. But to those who refuse it, those who do not believe it, there is going to be nothing ahead for you, my friend, but darkness. And you know what the darkest part 
of hell is going to be? Do you realize what the greatest torment of hell is going to be? Complete and total separation from God. There will be no truth. There will be no light. There will be no Holy Spirit. There will be no presence of God. What a frightening thought to die without Jesus. And yet thousands upon thousands of people die every day. People who never took the time to receive him. Please, I beg of you, don't let that be you today. Let's go to verse 28. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, excuse me, when the Jews who had been, in the, been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And here's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take the stone away, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been dead there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he, said that, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now we assume the outcome because we know how this story ends. Lazarus comes out of the tomb. But can I suggest for a moment that if Lazarus doesn't come out of the tomb, this is a very bad moment. This isn't just an embarrassing moment but it would be cruel and unusual punishment for Martha and her sister Mary. But here's what I want you to see this morning. Jesus has done all of these many miracles that we have been reading about, but human nature is such that in the eyes of us mere mortal human beings, even for Jesus, you're only as good as your last miracle. You see, he has already proven himself. But what I love about this is Jesus here is risking his reputation. He puts all of his miraculous collateral out on the line because if it doesn't work, it's all out the window. But Jesus knows that he is about to reveal an entirely new dimension of his power and of his glory that no one has ever seen before. So he calls Lazarus out. And what a moment 
that is. Now let me stop here for a minute and tell you just a little bit about Jewish burial customs. Lazarus would have had about 100 pounds of grave clothes on him. His head would have been wrapped, kind of picture a visual image of a mummy. So to me, I think that there are really two miracles here. One is the fact that Lazarus was raised from the dead, and the other is how in the world does he get out of that tomb when he's all wrapped up? This is such a beautiful moment because this miracle doesn't just foreshadow the resurrection of Christ, it foreshadows yours and mine. Because what happened in that grave runs parallel to our lives. You see, when we sin, our soul is wrapped in grave clothes because sin literally buries us alive. Sin makes a mummy out of you and me. And if you keep sinning, it will weigh you down like 100 pounds of grave clothes on top of you. But Jesus, he's calling you out this morning. Sometimes it is helpful to personalize the promises that are found within the scriptures. Some of you are going to hear God calling your voice this morning. I know this because the same Jesus who, who said, Lazarus, come out, also said one day, David Blythe, come out from your sin. You need to hear his voice this morning, and you need to come out of that tomb. Come out of your sin. Come out of death and surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus makes a bold claim right here in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Who says something like that? Well, someone who has done all of these miracles who has the, and who proves he has the power over death. That's who. And so he asks Martha a question. Do you believe this? And in what I think is the, probably the shortest proclamation of faith in the scriptures, Martha says, yes. Yes, Lord. What powerful words those are. Yes. Yes, Lord. They are words that, that ultimately are the genesis of anything good. They are the words, as I have been saying throughout this series, that are the natural part. They are the words that you and I speak in faith, and it brings about the supernatural on God's part. They are words that, when spoken, release the supernatural. They are words that put everything into context. I believe you are the Son of God. I, I believe you have all authority over heaven and earth in your hands. You say this, yes, yes, Lord, I believe that. I believe that you have power at the molecular level on up. I believe that you are the God of the miraculous. And more specifically, you are the God of the miraculous in my personal life. Scott, will you come forward? Help me close this down. I'd like to ask all of you to stand to your feet if you would. Take your time, I'm enjoying my water. <laughs> Here's what I'm getting at this morning. One little yes can change your life. One little yes can change your eternity. One little yes can give you a second life, just like Lazarus. One little yes 
can release the supernatural in your own life. And today I am going to invite you to say, yes, Lord. And the truth is that everyone in this place has a reason to say yes this morning. If you do not know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, today you can say yes to him. You can say yes to a second chance, yes to salvation. You can say yes to the forgiveness of your sin and for God's Holy Spirit to fill you up. You can say yes to a new life with joy and with a purpose for living. If you need a physical healing today in your body, you can say yes. You can stand on the promises of God that tells us that by Jesus' stripes, we are healed. And you can say yes to the Lord and receive your healing. If you have a broken relationship in your life, you can say, yes, Lord, I want that relationship mended in the name of Jesus. And then follow his guidance and follow his direction in the way that you approach that person who you are in a broken relationship with and seek healing and seek reconciliation. There are some of you here today and you need to come alive. You've been dead spiritually. You don't sense God's presence in your life anymore. Your Christian walk is on life support. You need to once again say yes to God. Yes, Lord, I have strayed from you. Forgive me for putting you so far down on the priority list of my life. Yes, Lord, I want to feel your presence and I want to feel your direction once more. I want to be led and empowered by your spirit. Maybe you're a person here today, and I talk about this a lot, but you are afraid to serve. You are afraid to use your gifts and your talents and your abilities for God's kingdom. You've never had the courage to step out of your comfort zone. You've never pursued this before. Today, you can say like Martha, yes, yes, Lord. Jesus, he is calling you all out today. He wants to use you to serve other people. And if he's calling you today, you need to respond. I want to open this altar this morning to anyone who wants to say yes to Jesus for virtually anything, for salvation, for healing, for strengthening, for boldness, for confidence, whatever it is. While the worship team sings, I want to open this altar and let's spend some time seeking God and saying yes to him and his promises in our life. And then we will close this service in prayer. down into darkness open my eyes let me see the beauty that made this heart adore you hope of a life spent with you here I am here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God. You're all together lovely, all together worthy, all 
altogether wonderful to me. King of all days, oh so highly exalted, glorious in heaven above. continue to pray at the altar I, uh, I just have a few words I would like to say to you as we well before I do that I, I truly believe that there's someone out there who should be down here and for whatever reason you chose not to come and I believe that today is a divine appointment for you to become a believer in Christ. You don't have to come to an altar to be saved, but you do have to pray words of confession and belief to our Lord in order to receive salvation. 
I want to pray a prayer of of salvation out loud and I want everyone in this place to repeat these words after me and the reason that I want you to do that is to encourage the one or multiple people who have not done so and who desperately need to do so this morning so I want you to bow your heads with me all of you in prayer and I want you to repeat these words with me loud and strong Heavenly Father I thank you that you are a good God I thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ. I confess that I am a sinner in need of Savior. I've been living in the grave of my mistakes and sin. And Lord, I'm not able to get myself out. But today you're calling me out. You died on a cross so I could come alive so that my sin could be nailed to that cross forever. So right now, I pray that you'll forgive me of my sin. Pray that you will take what is dead and bring it to life. Right now, I surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, yes. If you prayed that prayer with sincerity in your heart, welcome to the family of God. We would like to walk alongside of you in your journey as a a new Christian. We have classes on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. that go up till the time that this service starts called First Steps. Love for you to be involved in that. It's a 13-week class that you can join at any time because it continually rotates. At the end of 13 weeks, we will give you a study Bible with your name etched on the front of it, and uh, you'll learn a lot about this journey of being a Christian. We don't want you to just get saved and watch you kind of flounder. We want to help you. We want you to come closer to the Lord, understand what it means to live a life as a Christian, and we want to help you. So please take advantage of that. One more thing, and then I'm done, I promise. I've been talking an awful lot this morning. I know I've been going on a long time, but if you weren't here at the beginning of this month, I announced that I would be taking a sabbatical for the month of July, and uh, that means you won't be seeing me for the next five Sundays. A sabbatical is a time that is set apart for a pastor to rest and to recharge and to seek God while being away from the work that God has called them to. This is something that has been graciously offered to me by our church board, and I am thankful for them allowing me to have this time away offering me time to rest, offering a reset. If uh, you are new here, you've never been to a Pentecostal church, that's what's called a message in tongues. That was the first part. You didn't understand what my sister was saying, but then it was followed by an interpretation. And the scriptures tell us in a corporate worship service like this, if a message is given in tongues, 
there needs to be an interpretation. She had it. And the message, if you couldn't hear, was, I am your Lord God, and you can call on me for anything. And I believe that that's what Jesus is saying today in this message. Say yes to me. Watch as I do incredible things in your life. Watch as you start to operate in the miraculous. I don't know of anyone in this place that has been serving the Lord for any length of time that can't tell you of at least one miraculous thing that has happened in their life. And many have received and experienced multiples. God is a good God, ladies and gentlemen, and he loves you and he wants you to serve him with all that you are. He wants to use you and he wants to see great things happen in and through your life. So thank you, sister. Thank you for that. Um, if I could get back to the sabbatical just real quick and let you know that really this time is a time for me to come back and be prepared for the next seven years of my ministry here. So what I'm gonna ask of you is, well, first certainly, I wanna let you know it is a privilege and an honor to be your pastor. I love this church, I love the people in this church, and I'm blessed to be here. I am looking forward to this sabbatical, but at the same time, I know I'm gonna miss you. But understand, you will be in my prayers. But what I ask from you today is that you would keep me in your prayers. Uh, pray that God would refresh me, give me new vision, uh, purpose for this church and where it is that God wants to lead us. I would greatly appreciate that. and. Um, I want you to know we have guest speakers lined up for the next five weeks, starting with Pastor Chris next week. These are, these are gonna be great messages. I know you're gonna be blessed by them. You may not even want me to come back after this. I don't know, these guys are gonna be so good. But uh, you'll be blessed by them, I know that you will. And I want you to enjoy, and don't worry about me. I am, somebody wondered if I was sick. I am not sick, I'm healthy. This is just a, a biblical principle of sabbatical, and I'm thankful that it has been offered to me. So thank you so much. Can we close this service in prayer? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for my wonderful church family. Thank you for the word of God that teaches us so much. Every example, every story found within its pages, Lord, is just chock full of application for our daily life, and we thank you for that. God, we, we want to be a people who believe in the miraculous. We wanna be people who are perceived as crazy because as I said, crazy is the norm because we expect greater things than the world. They're all Thomas Jefferson's based upon logic. We don't want to live that way. We want to live believing in those things that people say cannot be done, and you are the master of it all. So, Father, help us to be an expectant people for the things that you want to do. Father, I pray that the heart's desire of this church family would be to go deeper with you to allow themselves to be used by you and to really make an impact on this community, not just as a church, but each one of us individually. I pray that you would use us in mighty ways. As we go our separate ways today, Father, I pray your spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, the places we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have. May those conversations build people up and not tear them down. Pray that we would shine like bright lights in a very dark world. And that brightness is the love of Christ that is coming through and shining through us. Father, I pray that it would be so bright that people would come to us and say, what is it about you? And then you open the door for us to share your goodness with them. So I pray God for a divine appointment for each one of us this week. Have someone cross our path that needs Jesus and help us to tell them about your goodness and to invite them to church with us 
and to see them become a child of God. Father, I also pray that you would keep us safe from sickness and disease. Keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us until we come together again and worship you in spirit and in truth. Bless my church family. Be with them while I'm away. And be with me while I'm away, Lord. And as we gather back together the first Sunday in August, I pray for a blessed time as we look ahead to the future and what you want us to accomplish here in Red Bluff. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.